Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness, as the term is used in conversations around race and racism, and as it pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who helps me to unpick these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the founder and director of the Museum of Colour, the UK's foremost arts and heritage digital enterprise, Saminoir Sesha. The museum is focused on the creative journeys of British people of colour and has as its mission to present a continually evolving online repository of once forgotten wisdom. Samanoa Sesha started her career in theatre and has worked in TV drama and community arts. In 2018, she was awarded an OBE for services to the arts and is currently on the faculty for Oxford Cultural Leaders and an associate of People's Palace projects. Samanwa, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's sunny here on the coast. Oh, lovely. You get to be on, on the coast with a little bit of a sea breeze. Well, lucky you. Um, we are super grateful to have you on because you are obviously behind this incredible uh, new uh, exhibition in Oxford. Um, I want to start off by asking you about the museum and, and about the incredible works that you have within it. How did the idea for the museum come about? So thanks. I have worked in the arts my whole life. And what happened um, sort of around 2010, 2011, was that I realised I wasn't going to continue to work the way that I had in that sort of senior management role, um, which is all demanding and I had some physical challenges and I realized I was going to have to relook at my life and I trained as a coach um, and I was already doing little bits of consulting work and I expanded that but I also moved to the coast as we mentioned the coast and one of the things that shifting perspectives from being in the heat and the thick of, of the day-to-day -day work in the way that I had been to sort of looking at it differently was I recognized that there were some people who were very successful who were still really angry. It's like there was, you know, a passion burning in them. And and I was like, if you're feeling this way and you are, you know, you're you're at the pinnacle, you've, you know, you've done wonderful things and you're doing wonderful things, how must people feel who are still plowing away, who is still really tough for? And how do we recognize that, especially working in the arts, it's tough for everybody, irrespective of your race, age, gender, and so forth, but it is particularly hard for minority groups. How do we pay respect to that? And also, how do we reflect the fact that the arts that we enjoy today, whether it's poetry, music, theatre, dance, um, have been informed by many artists who are not white, but who we don't know. Mm. Uh, so how do we recognize these people how do we ensure that those contributions don't disappear and you know as a nation we're overachievers in this area yes yeah? so are we have international reputations for our arts so the ability for people who have not reached the pinnacle to fall through the cracks of history feels too great and especially when their endeavors have impacted on the way the genres have evolved so that's 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 what I wanted to explore. And I wanted to explore it in a way that would make those people feel good. So that's that was my starting point. And um, where would you say that that initiative sits within kind of the wider conversations that we're having around decolonization, around kind of the need to rethink our histories or certainly the ways in which we tell the versions of histories to or educate young people into certain versions of histories? You know, there's definitely um, a lot of conversations in, in different fields around the idea that we've had a very truncated uh, narrative around British history. And some of that's been arguably misinformation, disinformation, omissions. Um, where does this initiative fit within that, perhaps within the wider field of the arts? 
Well, that's why, you know, we are an arts and heritage initiative and we have a dual purpose. So one is looking back, um, going, we go back to 1766 and looking at those contributions by, you know, creators from the global majority. Um, But the other element is working with contemporary artists to look at British heritage. So um, the overarching, I think, theme for Museum of Colour is perspective. So because I don't like to position us in terms of our usefulness for anybody other than um, the people who we are working with, although it, you know, it's open to everybody and we hope people enjoy it. It is, I think, important and also potentially empowering for people to look at history, creators to look at history themselves and go, hmm, okay, how do I feel about this and how do I want to respond to it and what their response allows the rest of us is a different perspective the perspective of a creative using their 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 art form to help us look at things differently that's it it's a perspective and i think there is definitely space for that i think there is space for different perspectives on our history that you know the commonly used term is that history is told by the winners told by the victors um and for those who definitely do not feel like the victors in the history we're told at the moment what would history look like when they look at it when they interpret when they respond to things that's that's the role i think we play what do you think that um I'm and I'm speaking specifically to kind of white people who'd be coming to the exhibit who might not know about some of this truncated history because you know I, I guess for communities um that are minoritized already there is a sense of we 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 know our narratives aren't there or we know our voices aren't represented or, or we you know this yeah. is you know they they they're presumably coming to the exhibition or to the museum in in already full knowledge that these are just a, a drop in the ocean and and kind of learning about uh it, it's not news to them that these these or perhaps it is i don't know so okay so because we're going to talk predominantly about these things matter that that at the time of recording is live at the bodleian in the western library um so the origins for that was my discovery of the slavery bible which i've never heard of and didn't know anything about so the idea so you know we have a sense maybe of our positions in society and and we are no more alike than any other race so we will all have different perspectives about that which our current prime minister and many in his cabinet are usefully showing us yes we don't speak with one voice we don't have one interpretation and sense of who we are in this world we all feel differently about that and i think that's important but i would say to um white people particularly who are coming to this exhibition part of the reason we've done it in the way that we've done it is there's so much shouting about this it's noisy and to understand this to come at things in a maybe a roundabout way a subtler way but hopefully an interesting way i think is useful um because i think we're all learning these new things when i first discovered the slavery bible everybody that i met was like did you know about this have you heard of it and the majority of people said no yeah so i don't think we should assume more knowledge by any one group than the other because if we've grown up in this country we were all taught history in the same way in schools so our our understanding of it unless we're self taught is probably more similar than we think Yes, unless you've had the the advantage of maybe Pan African school, where you learn a different different narratives of history that are perhaps a lot more empowering and Absolutely. rounded. But um, so I, I mean, I want to definitely come back to this uh, the slavery bible that you mentioned because it was um, an extremely confronting. Uh, you know, the, I think the exhibit in general. Um, you know, which I, I kind of have read about in detail now is 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 very confronting in the best possible use of the term. You know, I think great art should be confronting. That's my personal view on it. Um, it, it the the slavery bible I did not know about. I have to say I wasn't hugely surprised that there had to be some kind of um, edited version of the bible. Um, 
to, to justify slavery. But um, I, I'm not going to go. I, I'd love you to tell us more about the, the slavery Bible, because there's 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 so much behind this story, you know, even about kind of there not being any other versions out there. T- tell us a, a, a little bit about it, if you if you could. So now there's actually an official title for it that, of course, is flown out of my mind, but it's commonly known as the Slavery Bible. And what it represents is an edited version of the King James Bible. That's it in its crudest sense. But the edits were to remove elements of the Bible that would make slaves think they should be free. <laughs> or that slavery was bad and that they shouldn't be enslaved. And then that edited version was used to teach them how to read. So what is really important to understand is, for me, around this, is the, the particular emotional manipulation that went into ensuring that certain things stayed as they were and that that level of manipulation was done with very open eyes very consciously and on purpose and that the implications of that are quite important so the the stratas that we have in society they're not accidental and so for me that's what the slavery bible does is it reminds us that these things are not accidental um, you know, the way that certain um, continents, countries, parts of the world are now, 21st century, the things they are grappling with are not separate to our behaviour hundreds of years ago. So, and what the Slavery Bible does is it's a powerful way of illustrating that. So um, my surprise as somebody who has taken time to learn about specifically African history, but hopefully a sort of wider sense of world history that I didn't know about the slavery Bible was like, how do you not know this? Um, But what was really useful, because um, I don't know if you know this, but the way that we constructed this workshop was through public workshops. So it was co-created. So it was Museum of Colour, the Bodleian and Fusion Arts. But what we did, we brought in some independent um, academics who spoke with Bodleian um, curators and sort of said, if you look in your collections in this way, you might see X. And the wonderful Bodleian um, curators created a, sh- a long list of items that we could potentially use for this exhibit. And then we held workshops where they talked to anybody who wanted to come about those items and people voted for which items moved them the most. So um, it's been a really interesting process. But coming back to the slavery Bible, Um, When people came to the one in-person, because we were doing it in lockdown, the one in-person workshop that happened at the Bodleian, there was some, we held a a conversation afterwards to just talk about what that felt like, because it was very moving for some of the people who attended that workshop. And a couple of people who I think I can loosely say around my age, and I'm in my 50s, said, I didn't think I could still be surprised. I didn't think I could still be shocked. I didn't think I could still be disappointed. And yet I was. And, you know, one person is a Christian, comes from a Christian family and knew about it and had talked to their family about it. Um, And they were like, no, what are you talking about? And they said that actually seeing that physical thing, it stirred them in a way that they didn't really didn't expect. And I think whether it is um, art or whether it is artifacts, that's what this sort of material can do. It can it can maybe shift us a little bit, you know. Um, and so that's what the slavery Bible represents in my mind, something that can allow us to go, whoa, OK, now hold on a minute. Let me think this through. Yeah, let me think this through. And I thought um, it was really interesting to me um, I guess because I'm I'm aware that there's also conversations happening around um, the role of Christianity as a tool of kind of colonial expansion and exploitation. That you know some people will regard colo- um, Christianity as sort of you know a, you know a white religion that was imposed on on Africans and obviously there are also some really devout Christian Africans today who would argue well no you know there's, there's well by by being people of faith they believe that's the word of God and 
um, would 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 not regard it in those terms. And and so I just think it's a really interesting um, sort of addition to the that that whole discussion because you know the Bible obviously contains both potentialities, right? The potentiality for a liberatory narrative, clearly, otherwise they wouldn't have edited it. They wouldn't have needed to edit it if it didn't contain right. that. Um, but but also you know was used clearly um, in in the ex exact opposite. Uh, way to that and and what that speaks to in terms of I suppose the the uh, I suppose persistence that we find within colonial history of Europe representing itself as beholden to a set of universal values you know you call them human rights call them enlightenment values call them notions of equality that clearly just didn't apply to everyone equally and yet are still so core to the sense we have of who we are in Europe today. It, 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 you know, I would laugh if it wasn't so dangerous, um, you know, and so, so powerful and so destructive. Um, but absolutely, I mean, you nail it. The idea that we can have had a movement entitled the Enlightenment and yet be so unenlightened um, is quite something. I want to remember his name as a philosopher and he did the Reef Lectures um, a few years ago. But he talked about this notion of race and how we can believe ourselves to be led by science and to be led by truth and fact and reason and still have this completely debunked notion operating at such a fundamental level in our society. These, these two cognitions are not conducive. So, um, you know, but yet we do. Um, and, and we use them to describe so many things and to explain so many things while not fully understanding how they came into existence and not unpicking that. And if we don't unpick how they came into existence, how they have manipulated the way that we feel about each other as humans, then I don't see how we get to the other side of this where things are better and things can improve. So, um, so anything I believe that can help us with that understanding is useful. I am. Um, I was um, thinking when you were speaking of the um, ways in which I continue to be um, shocked um, and uh, horrified, actually, by the ways in which um, European notions of rationality, particularly in science, ha have been used, um, you know, to justify race science and most people think oh you know eugenics that was a long time ago and you know people don't think like that anymore but I was yes and I was and obviously we know um and, and we've done episodes actually on here about the ways in which um you know the the medical profession continues to perpetuate racist tropes in you know the the hyper medicalization of, of black communities and I would encourage people to go back and listen to some of the medical professionals who've spoken about the ways in which um, you know, black bodies continue to be treated differently by, than white bodies by the medical profession. There's still an assumption that they're different. And you, you touch in the exhibit on some of these ideas. I mean, I was uh, wondering if you might be able, for example, to tell us about, is it pronounced drapetomia? Ah, drapetomania. Drapet oh, excuse me, yes. I, I'm not sure I can pronounce it even. How do you say it? Drapetomania. Drapetomania. <laughs> So, oh yes, now this is a wonderful term. I'm glad you picked this one up. So we basically, we had six items from um, from the, the Bodleian and we had six creatives from the global majority who responded to them. Now, Drapetomania was actually, because we invited Johanna Latcham to respond to the whole exhibition, to what we were doing and the exhibition itself and the work that the other artists were creating. And Joanna is the person who chose drapetomania. So we keep saying this word. So what does it mean? Drapetomania um, was a term that was um, coined by a doctor um, as an illness that slaves were suffering from if they chose to try and run away from the plantation. Now, that is literally as extraordinary as it sounds. So that somebody who had gone through the education necessary to be, to practice as a doctor, could come up with a term that designated anybody trying to be free 
as being mentally ill is quite something. And when Joanna was talking about her reasons for wanting to, to respond to that particular word, um, she said she was thinking a lot about um, how women have been treated by the medical profession and the um, over medicalization of emotion and so forth. And, you know, and that idea that you're hysterical if you actually say you're not happy about something and so forth. And 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 that this is it, it, it's part of that, that medicalizing of something that you don't want to deal with. Um, making it official, making it potentially treatable, but, but basically consigning that person to sickness. Um, when that person is just revealing a very fundamental human desire, which is to be free, to live their own life on their own terms. So, you know, it, it, it's quite something. And um, but it, I think it's more so because it was a doctor who came up with this terminology. So what you're doing is you're you're very clearly saying the ability to memorise a lot of information and facts and use those in a medical way does not correspond to a moral or an emotional compass that is at the level that we potentially put your level of intellectual learning at. So you may have a degree of learning that allows you to do things to people's bodies and so forth, but your emotional understanding of humans is clearly non-existent for you to come up with that term. And, and I think it's very difficult for us in our society to understand how people can be really intelligent in one area and have no understanding or reason in another. If you're intelligent in one area, you're intelligent and you're great and you're fabulous and wow, we're impressed. And it's like, yeah, but you can be really thick in another area, really stupid in another area. I, and, I, and I feel like it also just speaks to the ways in which race has been so deeply codified into every aspect of our society that that term, as you say, could not only be coined by a medical doctor, but presumably his, his, his I'm going to say his because it would have predominantly been his at that time, but his and her peers would have sanctioned the use of this terminology. So an entire profession, you know, dedicated to health would have sanctioned the use of a term that is clearly so deeply impl implicated in the maintenance of slavery and exploitation. And I just think that I feel like it raises such loud alarm bells in my head about the blind spots we will continue to have today because presumably at that time none of those well some I'm I'd like to think someone raised the alarm but they're you know clearly not a majority um yeah I mean you know I don't know how long the term was in use for so that's worth checking but the fact that it was in use ever at all is quite something um but there are still there are real inconsistencies because we don't know how to talk about race. Um, and many years ago, over 20 years ago now, actually, I um, was in a job at Arts Council England. And one of the things, because we were looking at um, the racial inequality within the arts sector, and I was having lots of interesting conversations with people, but my friends got really bored of me saying, I don't have the language to have the conversations that I want to have. Um, because there are real limitations on our ability to talk about race because of the deeply emotional responses that it creates in people of whichever race. So um, so our ability to talk about it is just actually have useful conversations about it is quite limited. But what I'm hoping is that this sort of work, this sort of response work, and when you bring artists in to look at things that they will help us to have some of those conversations um because i think as you know the title of your um podcast we do need to talk about these things but we need to talk about them in a generous way in a kind way with each other um so that we can grow our understanding so we can move to a different place so even though yes drapetomania is a you know quite extreme example of this but interestingly just want to pop back to the slavery bible because what this reminds me of is there's always different people looking at these things in different ways so at the same time that there would have been doctors who were like oh gosh yes they're suffering from drapetomania 
I'm sure there were doctors going, this is ludicrous. Yeah, I'm not using You'd it. hope so. Makes no sense. Well, yes, I would hope so, because in the same way in our society, there are people who are going, oh, well, you know, you know, this is the way we've always done it. There are people going, no, A, it's not the way we've always done it. And B, even if it is, we don't have to continue. We yeah. change things all the time. Mm. Love that, you know. So um, when I was talking to um, a friend about uh, the slavery Bible, one of the things he said to me that really made me think about this was that there was another school of thought within Christianity, which is that if you were a Christian, you could not be enslaved. So so my question was then, okay, so does this mean that if you use the slavery Bible to teach the slaves how to read, and then they became Christians, they then got their freedom? Um, it wasn't the case but you know so how how do these things rub alongside each other and we know that a large portion of the abolitionist movement were christians not exclusively but they were christians and so you know because it went against their their christian belief that that you could have this sort of power over another human being so so it's interesting how you can take the one thing and you will know this because I know you you look at religion um, that you can take the one thing. And basically, as humans, we will just use it however we want to. Sadly, I yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the hardest uh, parts of being a person of faith is, you know, that obviously you you most people of faith believe that their faith contains truth with a capital t um and yet the kind of interpretation of that truth and the wielding of that truth in terms of how it's exercised upon other humans you know be they um communities of color be they women be they children um uh is is sometimes very confronting because it, it can feel antithetical to what you consider to be the, the truth of the capital T. And I think that's a really interesting kind of um, and uncomfortable maybe space that many people of faith occupy, right? Is that, you know, we, we, we're in the same space as people sometimes saying something diametrically opposed and yet we're both looking at the same texts in terms of references. Uh, but obviously I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but absolutely. And because I've had, as you would expect, some really interesting conversations around this version of the Bible um, in the lead up to and since that, you know, the exhibitions opened. And it does bring that up. It brings up that sense that we can have the same religion and yet have really different views on certain things. And then we will use different elements of the Bible to make our point. Yes. In fact, I wish I could remember the exact episode, but there is an episode in The West Wing um, where Jed Bartlett, who, if if listeners remember, was um, a devout Christian um, uh, president of, of United States in this show. And he confronts a, um, a Christian, I want to say she's a, a radio show host who is very, very on the right. Um, and he says something about, oh, well, you know, hold on a minute. Should we be using the pig skin for the, um, you know, and my daughter shouldn't have this and so forth. If if we're going to believe that the Bible should be taken word for word. And also, you know, I do. You don't work on on this day, do you? Not even open this, not even pick up your phone. I mean, you know, so the, the hypocrisies that lie within the belief in a book that was just written many years ago is the word of God um, and not an interpretation through man, um, you know, is open to, you know, to a really good comedy sketch. <laughs> Actually, yes, there's definitely a market for that. Um, I uh, wanted to ask you about um, one of the poems that is um, on in the exhibition, which was which is so beautifully written that it takes you to that space. I mean, that's got to be one of the beauties of sort of incredible art and writing is kind of you you can sort of imagine yourself in that space. I was wondering if you might be willing to share um, the poem with us. It, that, this particular poem is currently part of the exhibit, isn't it? Yes. And, and for everybody to know, the exhibition will end at the Western Library on the 19th um but a February, of February but it, just it, for people listening yeah, yeah. exactly but it is 
on the museum website. So you can go to www.museumofcolour.org.uk and you can find the majority, not all, of the responses and um, because there's one particular response that I hope we talk about um, that we definitely can't put on a website. Um, but the important thing about this particular work, so Amina Atik's a wonderful poem, um, a poet and she was responding to a letter that was being written to Arthur Codrington by one of the managers of his plantation. And he was writing this letter to Codrington um, and there were a number of things that he was he was talking about. He was talking about the fact that he couldn't afford to eat meat. He very rarely wore meat. He only had four shirts um, and a, num a number of complaints that he had. And one of the things that he was asking for was to buy the mother. So um, I would like to buy the mother as the name of the artefact. But Amina's poem is actually called Wench. Um, and he was white, this guy, right? This was the other thing that sort of struck. So, so he's he's a white he a white man working on the plantation. So presumably one of the the kind of what we call indentured servants, right? Um, um, which you know often when we talk about that period of history, you know, we sort of say, well, the indentured servants and slaves, and you sort of think, well, you know, obviously the, the there were differences, but kind of what were the differences? Obviously, we know indentured servants could could buy out their freedom, which obviously was the major distinction with um, African slaves who could not. But this 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 poem just sort of strikes at the core of um, the ways in which that that status was clearly not comparable. Uh, in terms of how they were perceived uh, on on the plantation, I think most definitely. And um, but yes, there's another element of human nature that is very much on display in this poem. So I will do my best, Amina. In your warmest sense of gratitude, you ask of me and my ten-month child. Everyone has forgotten us. As you remember, I am here, clothed in your waistcoats or worse, colony bedding. I hope you will deem no offence. I promise death to run while your lingua left my body. Thirteen years of drunkenness. But here you stained your four white shirts. Allow me to wipe your mouth of slavery. No doubt of your thinking something strange. You write, I am your misfortune to breed. An indulged childbearer. A sugar-shipped body, dancing cuffs in rituals around the highest bidders and studying wounds in English solve codes. I take my liberty of sweet poetry, a moment of grief oath to all my four children, to bless this island under the Barbados windmills, wash in their holy waters, build the Codrington estate in their mother's bullocks. I shall leave you to judge of it as you please, but I still have one particular matter to mention. There is an uprising lost between your starved, forlorn eyes. Her poem is called Wench, and what Amina wanted to do was look at this from the mother's perspective. So what the letter writer was writing to Codrington was that he had slept with this slave woman and he had borne children with her. And he had the right to the children, but he wanted to buy the mother. And the, in the letter, he, the, the, the paragraph that really struck Amina was, I've had the misfortune to bed. Now, you're in the position where you absolutely chose that and you probably raped her. And yet you position yourself as the victim while you ask to buy her. And what's beautiful about the complexities of these things that poetry can open up for us is Amina talked about how when she was actually reading the letter, she was like, oh, God, yeah, he had it hard. You know, because, yes, he was. He was an indentured um, worker and, you know, um, you know, he had it hard. But then, oh. But what has he done and what is he asking for? And what, you know, and all of those things. And and she talked about meeting this letter as a human and responding to it as a human. And, um, you know, and that's a space that she's written that very beautiful poem from. Um, but she wanted to give voice to the mother. She wanted to give voice to the woman he was asking to buy. And that's what she chose to do.
with the poet. Feels like such an important thing to do, given that we will never know that woman's perspective on it. And so it's interesting that, um, you know, I have seen several works now who have to sort of spec artistic works, I mean, have to sort of speculatively uh, imagine what people, you know, and we're speaking here particularly of slave when it comes to slavery, slaves whose voices will never be known, will never know what they would have wanted to say or how they might have responded. And I just think there's something so moving about our generation of young people wanting to exercise their voice in that space. It's there, there's a kind of continuity of, of lineage and um, refusal to allow those voices to disappear even when they in some ways have, because we'll never truly know what was said we we won't know but but what's beautiful about it and and what's really interesting because amina is of um arab heritage and um and so we were really clear that this wasn't some sort of match thing you know where we would have somebody from the african caribbean if you want to be specific when it comes to certain elements of slavery or whatever no that's not what we were doing um and um and in terms of the actual commissions we like to um wherever possible do open it up to anybody so artists um applied for these commissions from all sorts of art forms um, dance and music and so forth but what was really interesting when talking to Amina was, and some of the other artists about this process for them, was how they felt, given the position that they have in society, about responding to these particular items. Um, and the uh, the poet who responded to the slavery Bible, Bumi, we didn't know when she was matched to the slavery Bible that her father was a priest. We didn't know. And so the journey that she went on had a particular um, poignancy um, in, in responding to the slavery Bible. But I think um, this work and the artists who are willing to engage in it and, and bring themselves to that, I, I think there's something there for us in, in their ability to look at something and apply their craft to bring another way us to see something an interesting story this has literally just come into my mind because there was a play done years ago um by jude kelly about the workers oh they were definitely in the north of england who went on strike in sympathy with with slaves um when they were told that you know, slaves are doing this work and doing it for nothing. And, you know, it moves them to the point where they down tools themselves. And the more we understand that that common humanity has existed all through history, it was never that, we use the word binary a lot now, but it was never that binary. Um, it isn't now and it wasn't then. I think the more we do that, the more it can help us to have the more nuanced conversations that we need to have now about how we have an equal society. Um, and obviously we've had a lot of change with our royal family. And so the last, you know, six, seven months, we've been embroiled in a bigger conversation about the notions of being born superior and the connotations of that. And how can we in all honesty um, see ourselves as moving towards equality when we ourselves are actually subjects? Hmm. So, you know, so there are there, you know, these things are really topical for us and where we are now um, and things that can help us look at it um, in different ways and give us different ways in. I, I just think they're necessary. Can't hmm. all be. <laughs> no. And I, and I wonder what you make of the way in which we talk about, uh, you know, you've cho chosen to to kind of engage a conversation on race in a very specific space, the art space. And I wonder how you compare that to the, the way in which race is discussed in social media or, or perhaps even in the media more broadly. Well, it's interesting. I think art gets a bit of a ride on race. I've always felt that. I think it is one of the most racist elements of our society. And um, and I think because we politicise this issue, um, and it's not actually a political one, people are as racist on the left as they are on the right. Um, and the notion that that is otherwise is 
deeply misplaced. Um, and that tends to play itself out in a sector that on the whole considers itself quite liberal and is quite comfortable with that vision of itself. But when you look at the work that it creates, who is allowed to create it, who runs the buildings, um, you can see the inequalities that we have in our society playing out there in the same way. But for people who don't know the arts, the idea that it would be a safe place for you as a person of colour, as a, a gay person, as a trans person, those things are not actually upheld in the sector itself. Yeah. So um, I think that which is part of the reason the museum exists. So it wouldn't yeah. exist if we gave um, if there was equality in the art sector. It simply isn't there. So I do think that um, the arts gets a little bit of a ride. But I do think art itself, which is not the same as the sector, is a useful medium to explore how we feel about these things and, um, and the impact they've had on us. And, and I wanted to ask you, before we started recording, we were talking about Tony Morrison and we were talking about that very famous quote that many people will be familiar with, that, you know, uh, racism is a distraction. It has you essentially justifying your humanity over and over and, you know, digging up bones. I'm, I'm butchering the quote, so forgive me because I'm not reading this, but um, essentially, you know, finding ways to kind of continuously justify a humanity that was always yours, right? That, that, you, that you don't have to justify justify and and I know that there were lots of debates among um particularly some of my friends who are kind of in the cur art curatorial space you know who you are um will say to me that so much of what's commissioned is still centering whiteness by asking artists of color black artists to find ways to kind of confront racism or speak to race racial inequality when you know they might want to make art about something completely different um yeah, yeah. rainbows <laughs> yes um yeah how do you feel about the way in which sort of um artists of color are kind of i guess burdened in this way and 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 the impact that that has again it's part of the reason that this museum exists because there is this this weight of responsibility this um when I was at the Arts Council, we did a really interesting um, symposium conference. I'm not sure, entirely sure what we called it, but it was centering the visual arts and um, we hosted it at the British Museum. Um, and one of the things that I said to the people who were organising the day for us is I don't want anybody from the Arts Council um, on the platform, including me at the time I was working with the Arts Council. I don't want us on the platform at all. I want us to have conversations with ourselves. And it's an international um, event and we had some really fabulous people. Um, we had Horace Ove on the, um, you know, on the, the agenda. We had, um, oh gosh, uh, Mario Van Peebles. Um, but one of the most powerful moments for me was Chris Affili. He was in conversation with um, Echo Esham. And Chris does not like doing those public events. I'm, I'm sure he, he won't deny this if he hears it, but he doesn't like doing those things. And, um, and he had been asked by Tate, who I believe he was to, uh, at the time a trustee of, to, to do a talk. And he was like, oh, I don't want to do it. I said, even if you are going to do it, you need to do ours first. You need to come and talk with us, Chris. Come talk with us. Anyway. And he said, oh, because people are going to expect me to be representative of something. And, you know, and I, and I can't do that. I don't I, I don't want people to see me as a representative of them. And so anyway, so he was in conversation with Echo and then they opened it up to the floor. And the very first question from the floor was how it was about representation. How, what does it feel like to represent? <laughs> I sat there on the steps. I was sitting on the steps. I wasn't even in the audience properly. And I just went, oh, and he said, I don't even represent myself. Yeah, I represent my art. I don't represent anybody. And I think it was a useful for he was able to say that he was able to say it. Um, and I think a lot of artists feel like that. Some, you know, are happy to be in that representative place, but a lot aren't. And um, so and I think it is important that artists are able to create from whatever space they want to create from and they shouldn't have to sit under that burden. I remember when Spike Lee was asked by a journalist um, at a conference, when are you going to do a film that, you know, with more white people in it? And, it was, and I 
can't remember what his response was. But in fact, and Morrison was asked the same thing um, once. And I, that clip is, is, it circulates on YouTube. It pops up. I think it's an Australian journalist who I feel her pain um, with so many people watching that moment for her. Um, you know, and Toni Morrison in her beautiful, soft, graceful way says, you don't even realise how racist that is. But it is that need to centre that we struggle with, with whiteness, and even the Museum of Colour. So I was invited to do a talk, um, and I was doing the talk alongside Laura Van Broekhoven, the um, director of the Pitt Rivers Museum. And um, we we rehearsed, uh, not necessarily the talk, but the things that might come up. Um, and Laura is at the forefront of decoloniality and can speak on it at length and with intelligence and integrity. Um, I, however, am not, and the only person I can decolonize is myself, and good luck with that. But the, um, and I'm very clear that Museum of Colour is not trying to do any of that at all. Um, and I said that to the person that was chairing the event. And sure enough, live event, large audience. And he says, so how are you helping the Pit Rivers with their decolonity? And I'm just like, I'm not. I'm not. We're not. That's not our intention. Um, and in fact, um, Sean Sobers, uh, an academic in UWE, and myself and um, Laura were having a conversation in the summer of 2020 and the hotbed that that was as we had this sort of uprising during our lockdown. And we he mentioned, because we both feel quite passionately about this, if those who are in the arts or in heritage um, from the global majority, if our only way of being in that space is to diversify it or decolonize it, then when do we get to build our own spaces? What energy do we bring to building our own organisations, our own institutions, our own theatres, museums, galleries, whatever, if we are constantly, the best of us are being sucked into a space to make places that we didn't make elite in the first place more diverse? I mean, it, it's a perverse use of intelligent, extraordinary people and who could be building beautiful, interesting other spaces. Um, but such as the power imbalance in the sector, just nigh on impossible to do that. And there are a few people trying to do it. I might count myself as one of them, but the journey is tough. It's interesting. I'm I'm always conscious of how um, the notions that have been called to a sort of anti-racist struggle like representation can be wielded in a way that actually um, runs counter to the way in which that was intended um, and you know everything you said sort of speaks to that I think and um, maybe uh, uh, note to self in general that you know the terminology we use in these conversations can seem um, set because you know people of colour been saying well we need more representation but 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 then when white people are demanding <laughs> representation by people of colour, that has a completely different meaning, um, uh, particularly when you're saying it as someone in a position of colour, uh, in a position of power to people of colour who need, uh, you know, who, who want careers and who, you know, like everybody else, want to succeed. Um, I'm, I'm, I think that might require its own, its own episode. <laughs> we might have to come back to that. Well, it's, it is a particular, it is a particular thing. And if you liken it to the, um, the pull of the West on the talent from the other parts of the world, yes. So you graduate as a, you know, a doctor on, you know, in a country on the African continent, um, and you want to, you know, you want to get paid for your skills, and your country does not have the resources to pay you to the level that you require because, you know, you want to have your own family, you want to, you know, have your home, the things that we as humans want, and so you know you are going to be able to, you're more likely to be able to build a profitable career if you practice your your um, expertise in, in the West. And so there's this constant pull, which is hilarious because, you know, we don't even want them, apparently, but we need them, you know. So it is, so there is this, this thing, this drain. And so these countries who are trying to build themselves up and support their populations and so forth, you know, their best, their most educated, and then disappearing. And so it's, you know, it's the same, it's a similar dynamic, but on a global scale. Mm. And um, as to, uh, you know, the one that, that Sean and I have talked about, it, it you mm. know, it's a challenge. And also it is a challenge that I myself think about, um, you know, every now and again, and they won't mind me mentioning them. You know, I get those calls 
um, oh, there's a lucrative job, there's a job and, you know, I, we really think you could um, you could go for this and we'd love to have a conversation with you about it. And, you know, I look at the salary and I think, oh, <laughs> there's a lot of perfume in that salary. There is, there, yeah. You know, there's a lot of travel in that salary. There's, yeah. I can breathe in that salary. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> I think that's the you know um we we haven't gone into capitalism in this because it, it hasn't necessarily required it but the kind of running theme throughout the the entire series really has been the way in which um capitalism is so intertwined with racism that we don't even none of, I think no one can fully compute the ways in which the very motor of the uh, societies that we live in is geared toward exploitative exploitative practices and you know everyone is grappling with that tension right it's the you yeah. know I, yeah. I I want I want the cheap clothes but I also don't want you know seven-year-old Bengali children making them um but you know uh, and so yes it's um what we prepared to give up Right. And it's so, you know, I remember um, an amazing woman who worked in Arts Council London many, many years ago, and it was a conversation about diversity. And she said, here's a fact. If we are going to diversify the arts sector, there are people in this room who simply wouldn't be here because they wouldn't have jobs. Because somebody who doesn't look like me would be in this place instead of you. What are we prepared to give up is a much harder conversation to have yeah um you know i live on my own and i'm constantly worrying about food waste because supermarkets are not geared for people who live on their own yes they're geared for families you know and i understand that but it does mean it's really hard you know to, to have some variety in what one eats and not waste food um but it, you know so what are we prepared to give up it's a much harder conversation people don't let go of power um but even when we were putting together the exhibition and we wanted to support um people to be able to talk about it. And we were just, you know, trying to put some context around it and slavery and colonization and talking about them separately. It's like, no, one was needed for the other. Yes, basically we needed lots of bodies, yes, to do what we did with, you know, colonizing. So we, so that's where slavery came in. And I would be a very successful business owner if I didn't have to pay my staff. Yeah. How, you know, that, that, yeah. How, yeah. how do we correct that? And, yeah. and how do we imagine as some sort of superiority is ascribed to those who behaved in that way and capitalized from it and therefore had a lot of money? And we're like, oh, gosh, I must have done something. Like, oh, no, actually, I did a lot wrong. A lot of awful things. So, was it Benedict Cumberbatch recently realising that his family um, had, uh, you know, owned a plantation? I think it was actually in Barbados. Um, and, um, oh, I don't want to get it wrong. I'm pretty sure it was Benedict Cumberbatch. Please forgive me, Benedict Cumberbatch, if it was not you. I'm almost certain it was. But because um, obviously he'll be listening to this podcast. Um, so, but, but. We, we, we could sort of fit in any sort of uh, well-to-do well uh, British uh, uh, white actor uh, in that situation of saying, you know, well, what does that, what are the implications for that? And I think the whole kind of conversation was around the fact that, you know, the uh, Barbadians are asking for the land back as a sort of minimum, you know, m minimum baseline maybe return um, and the family perhaps being uh, not entirely on board uh, with, with that return. And I think it sort of ties into what you were saying in that when we talk about sort of um, relinquishing the system that continues to profit off racism, which I think is racialized capitalism. And I think we are in a, I call the state of capitalism, we're in racialized capitalism. That is going to require some of us to relinquish more than others because some of us have profited more than others, significantly more than others off of that system and I think the hard part of that conversation is obviously convincing anyone to relinquish power but also within a conversation on equality saying well actually 
in order to access greater equality, the measures are not going to be the same for everyone. And they can't be because they weren't historically. So why would they, how could that balance be readjusted through equal measures now, unless you sort of are prepared to wipe the slate clean on everything that's come prior and ignore where we are at today? Yeah, and you can't wipe the slate clean. You simply can't. That that that's impossible. That's science fiction territory. Right. Um, but what we can recognise is the inequality that we bring even to the discussion. So if we think about um, the short shrift that the uh, the notion of reparations is given in general, when we look at something like um, slavery, or and actually let's say the industrialized enslavement of people from the African continent because slavery is a much broader con, con much broader concept than that particular time um but that is when it was done at that extraordinary level that it has not been done before or after so um but we did pay reparations to the owners and we only stopped paying off that debt in what was it 2015 that's the enormity of it that anybody paying taxes up until 2015 was paying reparations to the slave owners because they had to be monetarily um, coaxed into stopping it. Compensated so, for their losses. They, well, there you go. And that notion of where you showed up when you're born and showing up on somebody's balance sheet as mm -hmm was one of the things that came up in the round table with the academics when looking when you know to 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 help the curators look to find things potentially for the exhibition and and that notion of being a commodity and not a human being is a is a is a very powerful one when it comes to race but the idea that reparations and compensation has not been paid is like well hello just mm. So we've finished with one. Can we actually start with another? And even if we're not going to start with it, can we not ridicule it when mm. we know and there's a history of us having done it? Is it just yeah. you're asking? I, I think you'll find it is. And I think you'll find there's a race issue there. What's your sense? Do you think that the conversation, my sense is that the conversation on reparations is just getting started and that we are going to get to a point where that's going to become it's going to become untenable not to kind of look at something more concrete i think you know um so particularly certain caribbean governments have been are becoming much clearer and much more vocal on their position and um that it, it seems to me that the, the tide is shifting and probably nowhere near as fast as it needs to be but I, what's your sense on that I think it's a conversation that will not go away when there is the sort of inequality that we still have in our society. But I think the challenge to that conversation is our, the difficulty of poor, and we are talking about whiteness, poor white people having to get their heads around the fact that they have indeed benefited from something when they don't feel like they benefited from much. And how can they be asked to let go things when they don't have much Absolutely. and I think that is the harder conversation and we are ill-equipped to have it given what happened to the notion of privilege and our inability to have you know useful conversations around that um, but I do think it's all part of it. I do think mm -hmm. we have to understand that. I do think it is, it is possible for us to understand we can have disadvantages by being a woman, by being a black woman, by being a black gay woman, by being a black gay disabled woman, by being a neurodivergent black woman, all of those things, and also experience geopolitical privilege of having been born in this country and have a British passport. In Rwanda, I'd have been on the bus. So it's really we have to have the space, and that's what I'm trying to create with this response work, to have more nuanced conversations about what this means. And that's, um, you know, it's it's not soundbite friendly, but it does feel really important, especially when we get onto the reparations, because you're right, I don't think it's going to go away, because we've got, what, Victorian level inequality in this country? Victorian level inequality with flat screen televisions to help us escape 
Mm, absolutely. I think it's really interesting as well how um, particularly um, the white working class um, re responses, and, and they are not uniform, of course, and I have to state that because obviously there are work white working class people who completely support, um, you know, the idea of, you know, be it reparations or greater, um, you know, focus on racial inequalities. But I do think you make that point very clearly that those are the same communities often who feel like, well, hold on, we didn't really benefit from you know, slavery, colonialism, you know, we're still living on the breadline and whatever it may be. But it's interesting that that's the response rather than saying, oh, uh, I admire the uh, kind of courage and gusto that's going into the racial reckoning. Maybe there's t space and time for a class reckoning. And they're not mutually exclusive, obviously, at all. <laughs> not mutually exclusive. And um, anybody that's listening to this that has been on my training will know this. One of the things that I am um, really against is, A, that representative notion. So that if you have more black and brown people in your organisation, suddenly by magic, you're going to be a more inclusive space. It just doesn't, it's not true. Um, and also, I actually think if you go, if you do class, you get race. If you do race, you get lots of middle class black and brown people. Um, but the majority of black and brown people are actually working class, but we don't get called that because we're black and brown. So it doesn't work. The, the whole divide and conquer thing works. If you go class, you will get race. And I also um, I find it very deeply problematic that the white working class are ascribed a racism that somehow doesn't exist in the white middle class. I don't run anything. They don't run the criminal justice system, the education system, the cultural sector, the political world. And those are the things that are keeping our racialized structure in place. So why do they bear the brunt of accusations around racism? It feels utterly incorrect and it's also not true. So the people who have the least power to change it are the ones who are blamed for it. it no. Yeah, and also conveniently locate continues to locate racism as sort of um, hatred towards other people on the basis of race rather than institutional or structural racism, which, you know, obviously affects people's outcomes. I remember it was um, uh, Professor uh, Kende Andrews coming on and saying, uh, you know, I, I would never say this, but the, he, he said something along the lines of, I don't really care if somebody calls me, uh, you know, a, 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 a rude term. I care if somebody stops me being able to get the next position in, in my career or if somebody, you know, stops me being able, my children being able to succeed. That's the bit that I really care about the other bits just you know it's annoying but it's it's not it's not the the kind of core of it and I think it's interesting that that's where the focus kind of tends to lie it's an insidious thing it's an insidious thing and, and it, it's things like expectations you know my father was very busy and he very rarely had to come to school for me thankfully however he did when I came home and said that my English teacher refused to mark my poem because he said there's no way I could have written it I must have copied it I couldn't possibly write anything that good and that basically showed his expectation of me. And my father looked at me and said, did you write it? I said, yes, I did. And he came to school. And it's that expectation which is as much part of racism. And if that's starting young and it hasn't gone anywhere, then these are the issues that we are grappling with. And so anything that can help us do that in a more in a healthier way, in a useful way, where we don't get polarised and lost in accusation, is a good thing. That's, that's what. Well, thank you so much. On that note, I'm going to have to take us to the quick fire round because I have uh -huh. already uh, taken you way over your time. Um, so a quick fire round is quick fire questions with quick fire responses, if you can. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? I don't believe whiteness exists in the same way that I don't believe blackness exists. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is a power. It's a, it's about taking power, mostly financial, but in other ways as well. It is about power. What does racial justice look like? Racial justice is a world where we do not have less chance because of the color of our skin, where there is no invisible headwind that we walk into, that invisible headwind has gone. Um, to go back to Toni Morrison's quote, racism is a distraction. What is racism a distraction from? 
<gasps> building, building our own beautiful things, building our new museums, building, writing extraordinary books, putting on amazing plays, building things, important things for the whole community, but, but led by a wider group of people that bring a different set of knowledge into those spaces so they can be creative and embracive and exciting and dynamic. If there was one thing you wish everybody knew, what would it be? How much money left other parts of the world and came to the peninsula known as Europe? Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? It is a necessary conceptual tool to explore something that has not been explored but absolutely exists. So it is useful, possibly necessary. Um, well, that's it from me. Um, I want to ask you about, firstly, for anyone who would love to come to the exhibit, These Things Matter, can you tell us where they can find it, how long it's running for? Absolutely. So it's currently in the Western Library at the Bodleian, Bodleian Libraries in Oxford. Um, and you walk through the doors and you see it. You cannot miss it. So it's there until the 19th of February. Um, and there is a particular item in that exhibition, something that we don't talk about very well in this country to do with our bottoms, that is, um, that's a really interesting thing to have a look at. I say that because it's the only item that you can't see in the version of the exhibition that we have in our um, museum on the site. But on the site at www.museumofcolour.org.uk, you will see these things matter. You'll be able to see the original artefacts that the artist responded to and their responses. But there is also a quiz. There is a quiz. And I would say to anybody listening, do go and have a go at that quiz, because there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know. Amazing. Samanwa Sesha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, uh, for sharing your thoughts with our listeners. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. <laughs>